As if it wasn't already painfully obvious, the 2022 Republican primary is underway. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com and reporting for duty, as always, Jeremy Wallace, who you can find his work at HoustonChronicle.com and in the San Antonio Express News as well. You're not quite as worn out this week, are you, Jeremy? Uh, no, no, I'm not working on some sort of auxiliary energy uh, for the last three weeks of the legislature <laughs> yeah. where uh, we don't know why we're standing. We don't know mm-hmm. how we're standing, but mm-hmm. we're, we're standing and but, we're typing stories. So. That's right. And there's lots to cover at the legislature. We're going to get to all of it. But I want to uh, put an exclamation point on something that I say all the time, and I think you have uh, gotten almost weary of me saying it, but I want to start with it. Because people need to understand this. If they're going to understand anything else that we talk about in the show, it's this. This is a Republican primary state. It has been for many years. And and let me put it a different way. It's a winner-take-all state. When the Democrats ran Texas, they won everything, right, years ago, up until uh, Republican dominance was sort of cemented in 2002 into 2003 when they finally won the majority in the Texas House. But it was Democrats running everything before. Now it's Republicans running everything. And I've thought a lot about this because there have been a lot of stories and, you know, newspaper columns and different pieces of analysis saying that the Texas legislature has taken a hard right turn, which that's fair. Right. But but we need to understand why that's happening. And in thinking about it, I remember 15, 20 years ago, it would often be said that Texas politics is national politics. And what did people mean by that? Do you remember former Speaker Pete Laney, the last Democrat to hold that uh, seat, that that office uh, in Texas? He had said the, uh, the whole idea of sending Governor Bush or President Bush to Washington is that we would take Texas politics and export it to Washington. And, and for many years, we did that. I mean, think about LBJ going to Washington. Think about President Bush going to Washington. The various leaders that we've sent to leadership in Washington over and over again. We're sort of informing what happens there at the national level. There's always some version of what I'm about to say, which is that more and more national politics is Texas politics. It's it's almost the reverse because the Republican Party is, and not just in Texas, but everywhere, is in the grasp of the former president. We talked a little bit about this previously, but I want to underscore it for you. There is now a Republican challenger to Governor Abbott in his race. And and do you think Governor Abbott's running for president, yes or no? Um, I don't have a yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't bet against it because uh, yep. you can't be governor of Texas and not be thinking, I have a shot to be president, right? Right. That was very diplomatic. Okay, so... If he's going to run for president, which, look, the chattering class in Austin, everybody says this. He's, he's running for president in 2024, but before he can get there, he has to win re-election in Texas. Now, he's probably a lock for that, but maybe not, and not without some work, right? He's got a well-funded uh, challenger in Don Huffines, who, and, and the Huffines family, uh, a storied family from Dallas, uh, you know, they run the Huffines auto dealerships and, uh, you know, there's J.L. Huffines, the, you know, the financial titan and all of that. 
This guy, Huffines, if you've never heard of him, let me just say this. He can probably put about $10 million of his own money into this race. He might even be able to do more than that. I'm not sure. Um, we know that Governor Abbott will have unlimited resources. Whatever he needs as far as cash, he will have it, right? But in a Republican primary, there is a saturation point with how much you can spend. It, it, it doesn't take necessarily the most well-financed person to win a race, although money is important. Now, Huffines has announced he's running against Abbott. He says that the Austin swamp is lying to everybody. And listen closely here in the announcement, Jeremy. Listen to the specific issues that Huffine says that Abbott and others are lying about. For decades, politicians have promised to secure our border, to lower our property taxes, and to protect election integrity. But year after year, nothing gets done. I'm tired of being lied to. We all are. That's why I'm running for Texas governor. I'm Don Huffines. As your governor, I will secure our border and finish the wall. Since the federal government won't do it, I can guarantee you Texas will. If the federal government won't do it, Texas will. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. Let me, let I me, guarantee let me, it. <laughs> let me flash back to 2006. All right. This is Governor Perry, then Governor Rick Perry, running for re-election. This is one of his television ads at that time. If Washington won't protect our border, Texas will. Here along the Rio Grande, we're funding a border-wide crime control effort led by local law enforcement. Governor Rick Perry ordered the Texas National Guard to provide border security support six months before the president requested it. And he's fighting for $100 million to stop illegal activity. Border security, build the wall. We're still talking about this here in 2021. Now, I make that point to say this. President Trump did not come up with this whole border security, illegal immigration message, right? He just did it better than any of these other guys, yeah. including Governor Perry when he ran for president, including Senator Cruz, who also got his rear end kicked by President Trump. Um, Trump also talked a lot about something else that Huffines talked about in that announcement. What he said was election integrity, right? We've got to have voter security and all of that. It's one of the things we've talked about a lot here on the show. This is informed by national politics. Why are Republicans sort of obsessively talking about voter security in a state, Jeremy, where we already have voter ID? We have very strict laws for registering to vote ahead of the election and all that sort of stuff. There are independent studies that have shown Texas is one of the most difficult states to vote in. And that has a result, right, which is we have been one of the lowest voting states, right, lowest voter participation. At the national level, the Republican Party is sort of at war with certain people within its own ranks and purging people who don't agree that President Trump was cheated out of the election. The biggest example of this is this week in Washington. Liz Cheney, who uh, she's not exactly a liberal, is she? <laughs> no, definitely not. Liz Cheney. Oh, yeah. Her father was no liberal. Um, th these are the team. And, and keep this in mind, listener. This is Team Bush, right? Yep. Cheney, Dick Cheney, Liz Cheney. These are all people in the George Bush orbit. Yeah, right? all the of Bush these people, all these people between two thousand and two thousand eight mm -hmm. know right. each other. <laughs> yep. Cheney's uh, very well. Bushes, you know, all of it together. Just this week, the Republican Caucus of the U.S. House decided to get rid of Liz Cheney as part of the leadership team. Before that was going to happen, Cheney went to the floor of the House. She refuses to back down 
uh, from her position, which is to say, and she just says this, this isn't me saying it. She says, Trump is lying to the American public, to Republican primary voters, lying about the results of the election, because he continues to insist that he actually won and Joe Biden isn't the president. And if you watch Fox News Channel or Newsmax.com, if you look at that, you would think, if, and if, let's say this, if it's the only thing you looked at, you would think the same, that President Trump was cheated out of the, out of the election, because that's the way they act, as if it's a fact, when it's the opposite. Right. We know that Cheney makes the point. Here she is in her remarks on the floor of the House. Today, we face a threat America has never seen before. A former president who provoked a violent attack on this Capitol in an effort to steal the election has resumed his aggressive effort to convince Americans that the election was stolen from him. He risks inciting further violence. Millions of Americans have been misled by the former president. They have heard only his words, but not the truth, as he continues to undermine our democratic process, sowing seeds of doubt about whether democracy really works at all. Jeremy, this is one of the reasons I am almost bored to tears by national politics, because what she's about to say is true, and in in May of 2021, she shouldn't have to say it. Over and over and over again, there have been people making the case that, look, President Trump lost. Here are all the facts surrounding the election. He lost the election. She still has to say it on the floor of the House because there are people within her own party who won't accept that to this day. The Electoral College has voted. More than 60 state and federal courts including multiple judges the former president appointed, have rejected his claims. The Trump Department of Justice investigated the former president's claims of widespread fraud and found no evidence to support them. The election is over. That is the rule of law. That is our constitutional process. Those who refuse to accept the rulings of our courts are at war with the Constitution. Our duty is clear. Every one of us who has sworn the oath must act to prevent the unraveling of our democracy. This is not about policy. This is not about partisanship. This is about our duty as Americans. Remaining silent and ignoring the lie emboldens the liar. So, of course, the Republican conference immediately dismissed her as one of their leaders, and they are in the process of picking somebody else. I saw that um, uh, Chip Roy may be running for that, uh, uh, challenging Elise Stefanik, uh, who is uh, – is she from New York? Yeah, uh, one of the, New York. Yeah, and one of those Republicans who uh, – not Roy, but Stefanik has a more – by any measure, a more moderate voting record – but that's not what matters in the Republican Party at the moment. What matters is, are you loyal to former President Trump or not? It, it, being conservative, that's a whole different question. We're at a different place with the Republican Party now. Now, there are complete podcasts and articles in national news about what Liz Cheney is saying in her future. So I don't want to get into that. This is a Texas political podcast. What does this mean for our politics here? George P. Bush Land Commissioner of Texas. A lot of people don't know what the Land Commissioner does, Jeremy. uh, For shorthand, I will say, for a Bush, it's a starter office. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, the land commissioner does uh, various things, including overseeing the beaches and uh, housing recovery after hurricanes. You know, there was a whole fight with land office and uh, uh, the city of Houston and all of that. It's an, and uh, they also uh, oversee uh, a large uh, sum of money for public schools in Texas. It's an important office. I don't want to downplay that. And don't forget, that. they also oversee the Alamo. You can't say the land office without mentioning the Alamo. <laughs> Definitely have to throw that in there. Uh, and always controversial. It's one of those things. Yes that they probably wish was not in their portfolio. Um, George P. Bush was uh, appearing on the Mark Davis show in Dallas, which seems to be his favorite show to appear on. Uh, yeah. We The last time we heard from Commissioner Bush, he was on the Mark Davis show, and, and my friend Mark always does a good job with the interview. Um, he was talking to Davis about a number of things, and uh, Mark asked Commissioner Bush about Liz Cheney about her ouster as the number three Republican in the U.S. House. And listen to Bush's answer. And keep in mind, as we said earlier, Cheney and her father and that family, they're Bush people, right? Listen to what George P. Bush had to say about Liz Cheney. No, it's a good thing, you know, because the, the problem is, Mark, if you are the conference chair and you've been given a vote of confidence early on in the session. Yeah. You're not just representing yourself, representing Wyoming. You're representing the entire body of Republicans, particularly as we try to take back the House and stop this dangerous agenda in Washington, D.C. So instead of training fire on the president, she really should have been training fire on Biden and that agenda. And that's that's what we and I'm not a legislator. I'm not in Congress, nor do I aspire to be. But I think that that's what you want out of your your leadership. And unfortunately, you know, she didn't rise to the challenge. So. Um, not surprised to see these these actions happen, um, but make no mistake, Mark. I, I want to help my Republicans take back the House, which I think we will take back the Senate. So at least we can stymie the Biden Harris if, if Biden makes it the full four years. I think Kamala is probably your next president too. So not only is the family history of the Cheneys and the Bushes completely irrelevant, uh, right, to, to what he said there, um, he's throwing her completely under the bus and siding with those who continue to insist that there would be some path you know, back to prominence for former President Trump. But it also flies in the face of what happened between the Trumps and the Bushes. Yeah. Right. I mean, in the last presidential election, wasn't uh, Jeb Bush Trump's least favorite candidate at one point? That is correct. <laughs> yeah. What did he call him? Uh, was it low energy? Low, yeah, Jeb. Yeah. Low energy Jeb. What do you make of this? I mean, it's a it's a split in the Republican Party. Um, and it seems like the only thing that is important, it doesn't matter what the voting record of the person is the history of the person as far as being a conservative leader. They did the same thing with Mitt Romney, who you might remember was the standard bearer for the Republican Party at one point nationally, and they want to boo him off the stage um, You know, in, in, in a recent event. Um, the only thing that matters is, are you loyal to President Trump? And that is it. And, and it has direct um, influence on what's happening with this whole debate about how elections are run in Texas because... Republicans need to show those folks who are still just so enamored of Trump that they did something to make sure that he would never be cheated if he ran again. 
Yeah, and certainly, like, a place I would love to kind of see is the next Bush family reunion, whether that's in Kennebunkport or Port Charlotte, Florida, <laughs> yeah, or right. somewhere at the ranch, you know, with George, you know, W. It's like, you know, George P. is, like, working off of a different script, right? Like, you know, clearly he can't see eye to eye on, you know, President Trump with his father or with mm-hmm. his uncle, you know, his uncle being, you mm-hmm. know, former President Bush, uh, let alone his yeah. grandfather, who spent a lot of time with the Cheneys. It's like, don't forget, you know, you know, Cheney and George H.W. Bush, you know, have a long relationship as well. So we're talking about two families that have been fused together over the last maybe 40 years. And here George P. is calling out Lynn Cheney. And I go, oh, boy, that just seems a lot to kind of, you know, focus right. on and try to kind of understand. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, I I wonder if there's not some path forward for Republicans either this year or next year. And and maybe we have to get through the the next election cycle for us to get to the point where Republicans can uh, be candidates and leaders who aren't in the mold of Trump and they offer up something different, but they don't have to badmouth Trump either. See, Liz Cheney is actively making the case that Trump is wrong, that he incited violence at the Capitol. And look, she was there for it, right? This is very personal for her and for others. Um, But some of those who were there and present have been able to shove that to the back of their mind and be loyal to Trump anyway. Uh, Is there a path forward for a Republican who doesn't necessarily take issue with Trump and Trumpism, but is a very different kind of leader? I don't see that happening yet. Yeah, until somebody can win election in in opposition to uh, President Trump or he's mm-hmm. irrelevant in their election, you know, there just aren't many of those candidates out there. And it's like, you know, Dan Crenshaw is one of those who won his first race, you know, you know, separate from the silo of Trump and, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit against the Trump world. But there yeah. aren't many other Republicans who have been able to kind of build like any sort of reelection campaign against President Trump, until he stops being an influence in elections throughout the nation, you mm-hmm. know, he's going to continue to have this role. It's like, you know, th- why would a candidate, you know, dare risk running afoul of the Trump world until it proves it can't take you out of office? Right. On the elections bill, uh, which is informed by all of this, uh, we reported last week that uh, the Texas House made some significant changes to the omnibus voting bill. Uh, This is Senate Bill 7. Uh, And the Senate and the House have not been on the same page on this from the get-go, right? The Senate had a very different version from what the House had rolled out originally. Uh, The House Democrats had their way last week in really uh, waging legislative battle um, on that bill. Uh, They were able to, and it kind of happens in slow motion, the parts that matter. The parts that don't matter as much for the way the bill is going to end up, those are the big dramatic things. So last week we talked to you about, and and we played for you the audio uh, of Democrats questioning Chairman Briscoe Cain, um, and that went national. Uh, In the New York Times, they said that uh, Cain was awkward and fumbled as he was trying to push the bill through, as he was being questioned. Those are the sparks that are flying. The legislative battle and the real tussle, that kind of happens behind the scenes. What had happened was there was a Democrat from Dallas named John Turner, a very smart attorney, who had called a point of order on the bill, which without getting into the weeds of all that, it's a procedural thing and they can either delay or kill a bill that way. Uh, Demo- you know, Republicans have already seen that bill slowed down once by their own mistakes 
by Chairman Kane's mistakes in committee. And so they didn't want to have it slowed down again. Uh, and what happened was the Democrats were able to use uh, the rules of the House to gain some leverage to change the bill. I think that's a fair way to say that. Yep. Um, and what they did was they added a bunch of, of amendments in the middle of the night, 2.30 in the morning, final passage around 3 a.m. Uh, on Friday morning last week, which is why we were especially bleary-eyed doing the show last week. Um, they took a lot of the teeth out of the bill. Um, here's an example. Remember there was the big uh, case out of Fort Worth where a woman had been prosecuted for uh, voting in an election that she was not eligible to vote in. In the new version passed by the House at 3 a.m. last Friday, um, you would have to knowingly vote in an election that you were not eligible to vote in to then be prosecuted for it. So they're yep. trying to make sure that uh, the things that happen in elections that could be easily seen as mistakes, and a lot of times they are, that those things don't get criminalized, which has been the concern of a lot of folks throughout this whole thing. Um, I found this fascinating. A lot of times, especially at the end of session, it's not so much Democrats versus Republicans, it's House versus Senate. And what does the House want to do versus what does the Senate want to do? Can they work out their differences? Lieutenant Governor Patrick was interviewed by Jason Whiteley on WFAA on Sunday. And listen closely here, Jeremy. He does not badmouth the changes from the House. In fact, he says we can probably work with them on what they came up with. That happens between the House and Senate on major bills. You know, each House has their own view. At the end of the day, Jason, we will pass one of the strongest voter integrity bills in the country. Uh, the, the preliminary look that I've had, I think the changes are, are, uh, are something we'll work with them on. So we will have a strong bill that will do the basic things that the people of Texas expect. In fact, there was a, a poll released, you may be aware of, uh, Jason, that um, says that 85% of Texans, that's Republicans, Democrats, and independents, 85% of Texans support photo voter ID at the polls. 85% support verifying mail-in signatures on ballots. Uh, and so those two key issues, and there are many more in Senate Bill 7 that will be in the bill, uh, I think send a strong message of what Texans uh, support. Uh, they also support that we have uniform laws on elections in the state. And last election, Harris County went their own way while the other 253 states followed the law. Harris County didn't. The other 253 states in this state did not run out there and just make up their own election rules. Of course, he meant counties. I think he meant counties. I would say charitably, if Joe Biden had said there were 253 states, there would be entire segments on Fox News Channel about it, and Lieutenant Governor Patrick would be happy to participate in those. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he meant counties. Um, interesting, Jeremy. It doesn't sound like he plans on fighting the House about it. Yeah, and, and what's really interesting about that, so he takes a shot at Harris County again, right? But in the version that's coming over from the House, a lot of the you know the 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 efforts to chastise or take away power from Harris County mm -hmm. have been removed from this bill. You know, it's like the things that like would end drive-through voting, the things that would you know end twenty-four hour voting. Those are things that Harris County did that he says yeah. they shouldn't have been able to do. But those pieces have been taken out of this bill right now. But, you know, for the for the listeners back home, let's like make sure that people understand this big bill may have changed. But mm -hmm. there are smaller bills floating through the House that in the Senate that do some of these same things. So, mm -hmm. you know, the battle is never quite over. Even if this bill changes, P 
pieces of it can be broken off and you know stuffed into other parts of legislation that you, maybe you haven't even dreamt of yet. Uh, but there is certainly going to be you know more fights on those other pieces too. But it's just so unique to see him say we're clamping down in Harris County, but this bill that's coming over took a lot of Harris County out, and we might be okay with that. Yeah, I think that what he might mean is, and I'm just trying to game it out, because what they will do is the Senate will probably not concur on the changes and they will have a conference committee behind closed doors to hash all this out. I wonder if the Democrats in the House were able to change the House's bargaining position such that the Senate might just demand that they put the Harris County stuff back in and that's good enough. Yeah. It could be that, right? And then, and then, and then, in a lot of ways, the Democrats get what, a part of what they want on this, which is uh, that they don't want to see a lot of these activities that happen around voting be criminalized, because that has been the big concern from voting rights activists all throughout this fight. Now, another reason I say that is that Harris County is getting ready to sue the state over this if this bill passes. Uh, the county attorney in Houston is Christian Menifee. And he argued uh, in front of commissioner's court that the main bills on this, House Bill 6 and Senate Bill 7, specifically target Harris County voting practices and would discriminate against minority voters. That's the way he put it. One of the things I've heard uh, defenders uh, of these bills, Judge, argue uh, is that the bills are not discriminatory because they don't explicitly target African-Americans or uh, Hispanic people. Well, Representative Kane's purity at the ballot box language aside, that's an antiquated way of assessing whether voting laws are discriminatory. So we'll see where that goes. Um, it's interesting to watch the um, animosity between the state government and the local governments, Harris County in particular, and Harris County becoming almost the same for Republicans, the same punchline that Travis County was for many years as the Democratic bastion in the state. Now it's Houston which, as you have pointed out in your uh, coverage over the, you know, over the months and years, Jeremy, um, they have really been going out of their way to try to change things in Houston, try to try to rein in those Democrats in Houston. Uh, when it was not that many elections ago uh, that Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Patrick were not doing that bad there. Yeah. And, and you can't help but think but that personal history has to be somewhat involved here. Right. You know, here's you know, Houston where, you know, Greg Abbott got his judicial start. Dan Patrick, you know, got his start uh, where Ted Cruz is from. You know, all those you know people are from there and they used to win that area. They used to win Harris County. They used to win Houston. But now they are getting clobbered election after election. And it's hard not to kind of see these election bills as kind of a that's it. We're not taking this anymore. <laughs> We're going to take voting locations mm -hmm. out of parts of Houston that are kicking our butt. And that's right. what uh, at least a part of Senate Bill 7 would do. It would take some you know, voting locations for early voting out of some of those you know, black and Hispanic communities uh, that have been really just a problem for Republicans. Mm -hmm. This is why they're losing Houston and Harris County these days. Right. Um, some of the other things making their way through the legislature, I would relate right back to President Trump. Do you remember when after the riots and protests in Charlottesville, which President Biden said was the inspiration for him running for president in the first place? You remember when uh, President Trump at the time said that when you had those who were uh, rallying for black lives and then on the other side, you had white supremacists marching in the streets with torches saying Jews will not replace us, right? That was the chant. President Trump said there were very fine people on both sides of that. 
You, you recall this, right? Oh, yeah. The bill debated in the Texas House earlier this week dealing with what teachers are allowed to talk to students about uh, when it comes to American history would be like taking that statement from Trump that there are very fine people on both sides of this stuff and, and making that the policy in a classroom in Texas. All right. So, so what, what this has to do with, in part, is something called critical race theory. I have heard people say that this is not even a real thing, that there's just a, there's a lot of scholarly work that has to do with, and it's not that critical race theory isn't something that gets talked about, but there's a lot of work that has been done, a lot of studies done, a lot of writing, uh, and a lot of uh, you know people thinking and, and talking and debating the way that race has shaped American history and politics and policy. Um, and there's no denying that it has. Um, to put your fingers and your ears on that is just to be in straight up denial. However, as what we've heard through a lot of the show, it, it, it proves that a lot of people are sticking their fingers in their ears and don't want to know facts and history and stuff like that. Critics of this say that it's a whitewashing of American history. Okay, so if you, and one of the things that is in this legislation, it says that um, if you, as a teacher, we're going to talk to students about a current event. You can't do it if it's controversial. All right. <laughs> or if you talk about the Charlottesville deal, that you have to present both sides as if they have equal weight. Again, there are fine people on both sides of this debate. Let me illustrate for you what happens when you put that in a piece of legislation that may become Texas law. Democrat James Tallarico from Williamson County was questioning the bill author, Republican Steve Toth from the Woodlands, about whether Toth would accept language in the bill that would just say that white supremacy is wrong. You might think the answer would just be yes, but listen to this. You're putting restrictions about how we can talk about race. If we talk about race in a civics classroom, we've got to say that the founders didn't mean it. It was an innocent mistake. It doesn't live up. It's not part of our authentic principles. Would you be open to an amendment requiring that in civics classrooms we teach the history of racism and white supremacy and that we teach our students that it's morally wrong? Would you be open to something like that? We already are teaching that. We should teach that. And throughout this document, it talks about the fact that slavery existed and that it was wrong and that it was evil. And so you'd be open to Where an amendment? This, no, I'm not open to an amendment. You're not open to an amendment condemning white supremacy in our civics classrooms? <laughs> this is a simple question, Mr. Toth. Are you open to an amendment condemning white supremacy in our civics classrooms? White supremacy, in what context would you like to discuss I think it? Mr. Toth, it's troubling that you're having to ask a clarifying question. It's an no, easy if yes. You're, if, you're, if we're trying if you're to condemn say, white supremacy and its role in American history... Is, is, you shouldn't have is, to quibble over a definition. If you're going to say that white Mr. supremacy is systemic in the United States today, is that what you're trying to say? Is that I want to understand what, you're, what you want your, for your amendment to do? I would like our amendment to teach the history of white supremacy in the history of our country and teach students that it is morally wrong. That's all I want to do. Representative Toth did eventually agree to add something like that to the bill, uh, but you can see where this goes, Jeremy. It, it's uh, stifling to teachers. I think every teacher's group is against this because basically they're handcuffing what teachers can talk about. The way that it's written, it's another one of these sort of clever, and this is a model legislation. Again, national politics 
being impressed on Texas instead of yep. the other way around. This is a national movement to pass bills like this, model legislation that's been passed in other places. Didn't Florida do something like this? Yeah, I was about to say that. There's so many bills that we're looking at that it's in this weird echo chamber where Arkansas brought it up in their legislature, Florida picked it up in their legislature, Mm -hmm. and now here Texas is talking about the same bill. And I'm listening to the same debate over and over again on critical race theory in each Mm -hmm. one of the chambers. And I'm like, okay, this is clearly a national bill that has plopped itself down in the middle of the Texas Capitol. The Republican members of the legislature are checking boxes that they feel are necessary to win their reelections in their primaries next year. Um, And this is one of them, right? You need to be on the same page with President Trump about this stuff, that there are very fine people on all sides, right? It's this false equivocation. Um, Speaking of the primary and something that's going to be very important, the governor's reaction and response to COVID-19 was front and center for the last year, right? Now, it seems to have been debated mm, somewhat hotly in the legislature, but maybe not as hotly as some of these other things we're talking about. Um, The House did have a long discussion this week about House Bill 3, which is by Chairman Dustin Burroughs from Lubbock. And what it seeks to do is disperse power a little bit uh, with the governor and some other uh, elected leadership. So the speaker and the lieutenant governor... Some chairman uh, in the House and Senate would be on an advisory committee, essentially, to uh, work with the governor on what he would do during a pandemic. I'm trying to figure out where we land on this stuff, Jeremy, because the House and Senate have completely different versions yes, of this stuff. very different. Right? The Senate has a constitutional amendment that they passed, carried by Brian Birdwell, a senator from Granbury, south of Fort Worth. And what his deal would do, and it had, it, I think it was a little broader because it talked about any disaster that affected most of the state. For an extended period, the legislature would have to come back in in a special session after 30 days if the disaster is dragging on such that the governor would not be able to just continue to make all these decisions unilaterally, which, as you know, the right wing of the Republican Party was very unhappy with. And Democrats were unhappy with it, too. I mean, Abbott was stuck in the middle and he always middles himself. So this was even worse. You had Democrats saying that he wasn't doing enough to contain the disease. Republicans saying he was doing too much. A lot of times from a public policy standpoint, that's a good place to be. Um, But the Democrats were not the most vocal and angry about what Abbott was doing. Shelley Luther, the salon owner from Dallas, became a national figure for at least, oh gosh, 15 minutes or 20 (laughs) minutes. 15 minutes times a year, maybe. <laughs> times a year, yeah. She, she's she's on Fox News Channel, and she's launched her own show and everything. She got an invite to CPAC. She, she said more at CPAC than Ted Cruz did. <laughs> I'm going to prove my point again here. When Governor Abbott, around that time, that that was controversial, that, that Shelley Luther had, uh, had to spend some time in the Dallas County Jail, who did President Trump ask Greg Abbott about when he visited the White House? Shelley Luther, right? So this all goes back to Trump again, okay? HB3 is opposed by some of the most conservative Republicans because they say it doesn't do enough to rein in the governor. And if you don't think this is going to be an issue in the next primary, you just haven't been listening. you got to pay attention to what we're saying here. You would know all this stuff. Uh, Representative Matt Schaefer from Tyler, Texas, Smith County, 
He was against the bill on final passage. He said that, look, business owners were crying out for help and Republicans were hanging them out to dry. I remember some of the phone calls that I received. One in particular from a woman who cut hair. Three kids. She's a sole provider for the family. She'd been unable to get her unemployment application through, no money. And she's listening to the news and she's hearing the governor of Texas use the word jail in the same sentence about going to work. Members, this bill does not restore the checks and balances that are required under our Constitution. We are drifting. Let me remind you of what the Texas Constitution says. Article 1, Section 28 in our Bill of Rights. No power of suspending laws in the state shall be exercised except by the legislature. Let me remind you of Article 2, Separation of Powers. The legislature makes the law. The executive enforces it. The judicial branch calls balls and strikes. We had a situation last year where the governor did two things simultaneously that are unconstitutional. He took those statutes that gave people a right to work and he said, I'm suspending them. You can't work even though the law says you can. Says you can sell alcohol. Says you can open up your barber shop. Suspending the law against the Constitution. Moreover, he created a crime. He literally went into chapter 418 of the government, uh, government code and said, I'm going to create a, a crime right there in the government code, in the state plan, and I'm going to charge my law enforcement officers at TABC and TDLR and other places to enforce that crime. So members, we've already made up our mind on this bill. But I'm telling you, I'm against this bill because this bill is unconstitutional. This bill creates a commission that would ratify the governor's unconstitutional acts. Now, the chairman who's carrying the bill, Dustin Burroughs, who I mentioned from Lubbock, he would disagree with that. He says that the commission that they're creating or the oversight uh, committee uh, would be something that is a check on the governor, that wouldn't allow him to simply make these decisions. And Burroughs also added some other things to the legislation, including uh, a provision that says that after 120 days of a declared pandemic, and again, this bill is only about pandemics, not yep. large, not other disasters. This is only about pandemics. Another instance in which the House and Senate are not on the same page at all. The Senate was arguing about and, and, and passing legislation dealing with disasters in a larger sense. This is more tailored to just pandemics. Burroughs had said that after 120 days of a declared pandemic, the legislature would have to come back in in either, you know, if it's time such that it's during the regular session, then that's fine. But if they have to have a special session, then that would happen uh, such that the governor would not be left on his own, his or her own, because it's not just about Abbott, it's about any future governor, um, that they couldn't just make all of these, these decisions by themselves. Jeremy, I can already see this playing out. Any of the Republicans who voted for this bill are probably in their primaries going to be challenged on the fact that they didn't do enough to rein in the governor, that they didn't even try to do any more to rein in the governor, who the uh, Texas Republican Party chairman, Alan West, has called King Abbott. 
Do you think we might see some mail pieces around the state where it's King Abbott with a crown and then your state representative who's a Republican next to him and saying this person supported King Abbott with whatever he wanted to do, shutting down Shelley Luther's business in Dallas, shutting down your business, keeping you from making a living, siding with Dr. Fauci, yep. who has also become, you know, one of the um, Anthony Fauci, one of you know the top disease, infectious disease expert in the country, um, in the federal government, uh, who is uh, always in the crosshairs now of those on the right. They say that he's the one who forced us all to wear masks and all that sort of stuff. Uh, this is going to be one of those very ugly issues, and I'm not even sure if they're actually going to pass legislation into law about it. Yeah, there's still there's still uh, quite a bit of a gap here. They they, they got to kind of knit together here to get there. Uh, but you know, this seems like the perfect part of the show to remind people that by next week we're probably going to have fifty thousand Texans who will have died from COVID nineteen. You know, it's like this whole conversation. It, like, if I were king for the day, you know, I would require the legislature to kind of let you know all the members remember how many people have died from COVID-19 mm-hmm. and that, you know, that just kind of you know, puts into some perspective of why did the governor do the things that he did or not do, right? And it's like put in the context of 50,000 people dying and clearly people with the governor's office uh, are going to say more people could have lost their lives if we didn't take the actions we did. If yeah. bars had been allowed to be open the entire time, uh, what would have happened? You know, so those types of things are have to at least frame a little bit of the conversation, you would think. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other thing here before we wrap up the show, and it, it has been a tough year for businesses across the economy, right, in all sectors. Um, but for this, let's take a trip down a dirt road. We were playing at an old dance hall outside Aquarius. Joint was jumping back from wall to wall with cowgirls and the Dance halls across Texas were already having a tough time prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, one of the Red Dirt Country artists who uh, I really enjoy his music, and I guess you talked to him, Randy Rogers wants to do something about these dance halls that we're losing all across the place. Yeah, Randy Rogers, who you heard there, it's like not only he's a musician, but he also owns uh, you know, Cheatham Street uh, Warehouse down in San Marcos. Mm-hmm. And for those you know who are George Strait fans, will know that place. That is where George Strait and uh, the 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 Ace and the Whole Band really first started playing together. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's where they got their break. And so, but those places are all under some serious you know, financial pressure right now, not just for the pandemic, but just from all the urban growth that has driven Mm. up rents and, you know, property taxes to the point where, you know, simple alcohol sales trying to keep these places alive aren't doing the job anymore. So you look at places like Threadgills in Austin, you know, Mm -hmm. where Janis Joplin got her start, gone. The Roxy down in Laredo where Selena met, you know, a big part of her band, gone. Bulldozers. Fitzgerald's in Houston, where ZZ mm-hmm. Top and Stevie Ray Vaughan often played, gone. It's like all these places are gone from all the pressure. And so now the legislature is trying to create uh, a music incubator program that would give up to about $100,000 back in alcohol taxes to some of these venues to help okay. keep them afloat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Randy Rogers, who you heard in that clip there, you know, I interviewed him earlier and he said to me, it's like, I know the next George Strait is out there. He needs a stage. If we're not here, where does he play? Yeah, you know, and that's a really kind of good point. I'll have a whole story on this, you know, in the Houston Chronicle and the Extension Express News. People mm-hmm. should check it out. It really kind of, you know, talks about kind of how these clubs that have become 
not only like for musicians, but they employ 200,000 people in the music industry in Texas. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so it becomes a part of the economy. And to see the Republican legislature kind of acknowledging that, and this bill's already passed the House and the Senate, and it's on its mm-hmm. way to the governor. Uh, they recognize that there's like a cultural piece to our Texas music, right? Is there something that I was born to write more than music in politics? Not no, sure. No, I don't think so. Yeah, exactly. If I can get Willie Nelson, George Strait, and Selena into the same story, I'm I'm golden. Yeah, man. And, you know, I think um, every one of the dance halls that you mentioned that had closed down, that was all – every one of those was pre-COVID. Am I wrong? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. I mean, the, I know in Threadgills, at Threadgills in Austin, it was just a simple matter of, you know, land values and <laughs> clearing the way for, you know, the next high rise or whatever yep. that they're going to build. Uh, in downtown or near downtown Austin, uh, and so it, it is. Uh, you know, it is a thing that matters for the uh, for the what what, what, you, what I mean. I'm thinking in a larger sense culturally. You know, you talk about George Strait playing uh, down at San Marcos. That's long before he was at the major venues like the oh, Washington yeah. County Fair. Yep. <laughs> yep. I mean, this is this is a key to who we are, and with all of the um, all the national politics pressing on everything else. There does need to be some recognition that we have things that are our own, right? And people need to be invested in their communities. Um, and so that's that's a positive thing that they're working on. That where's that bill in the legislature? You so said it's House and Senate. Is it done? Is it all on its done. way to Abbott it's now? On, yeah, Governor Abbott's okay. got this thing. It's like it's Sign all up to sucker. him. If he signs this thing, they'll you know starting in 2022, there'll be at least an avenue for a lot of these you know clubs that are struggling to no. apply to get some of that alcohol tax that they paid to the state back to them to help them keep them afloat and not have to pave them over into parking lots. You know, that's the saddest thing about Fitzgerald's and and Mm -hmm. Houston. It it just turned into a parking lot. It sucks. Yeah, you're right. When the parking Mm -hmm. lot is uh, more financially feasible than the club, you know, there's a problem for the next generation of, you know, where the next Willie Nelsons are coming from, Mm -hmm. Bob Wills, you know, all that Texas music that has become like part of the national scene. And people literally travel to Texas to go to these honky talks. They travel, you hear these musicians all the time when they go to Green Hall, Flores Country Mm -hmm. Store, you can see the word Lukenbach, right? Everybody in the nation knows Lukenbach exists because of Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson. And I think people come to those places for the music. And so, it's interesting to see the Texas legislature, which look all the they advertise these places for people, mm-hmm. you know, for tourism to come here and for, for them to sure. acknowledge yeah. that it's a piece of that tourism arm is kind of a big step for the legislature. Absolutely. Well, now we have alcohol to go. Governor yeah. Abbott signed that bill, and yep. you got alcohol to go, and you need to go dancing. Thank you very much. <laughs> if you enjoy the show, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Give us the best rating that you can. And if you want to leave a review, you can do that. I actually uh, have avoided reading our reviews because I just don't – I can't take it if people are going to be critical. Generally, it's it's this. Uh, some folks who might be very conservative saying that we're too liberal and some liberals saying we're too conservative. I'll take it. That's fine. There you go. <laughs> if you think you're coming up with something original by saying that about me, <laughs> you're just catching up to me. I've been listening <laughs> to that my whole life. Um, you can listen to this show you know, on any of the podcast platforms. Check it out. High ratings and say whatever you want in the comments and the reviews. It's fine. I can take it. Uh, subscribe, if you would, to quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you back here next week. Mm-hmm.